Hello everyone and welcome back to the Southern Housing Group podcast. I'm your host Daryl. Today's episode brings us to the end of our domestic abuse series and following on from episode four where we heard from Govinda, today we welcome back Amy Fox from our solicitors Pennington's as she catches up with Bria and Graham to look at what help is available from a legal point of view with regards to forced marriage. And then later in the show, we catch up with Bria as she interviews Saranya from the Domestic Abuse Housing Alliance. Amy, thanks for joining us again today um, to talk about our next topic. If we start with the first question, which is, what is forced marriage? So forced marriage is when you face physical pressure to marry. So, for example, threats, physical violence or sexual violence or emotional pressure. So if you're made to feel like you're bringing shame on your family by not marrying. And it's where one or both parties to the marriage do not. Or in the case of people with disabilities, cannot consent to the marriage. And typically the pressure is applied by family or the wider community. And it's applied to force a marriage to take place. There's actually a definition for it included in the Family Law Act 1996, and that is that a person, A, is forced into a marriage if another person, B, forces them into a marriage, whether with B or with another person without A's free and full consent. And force includes um, coercing by threats or psychological means. The person forcing the marriage can either be a party to the marriage or they can be a third person, such as a mother or father or someone from the wider community. So it's important to know that it's recognised in the UK as a form of domestic or child abuse because it quite often involves children and it's a serious abuse of human rights. I just wondered if you could talk to us about the, the difference between a forced marriage and an arranged marriage. Yeah, and I think that's a really good question because like you say, they are very different. So a forced marriage is a marriage where you're forced into it, as I say, as a consequence of physical or emotional pressure. Whereas an arranged marriage is a process whereby generally a person's family is involved in selecting a partner for them, but it absolutely remains their choice as to whether they go ahead with the marriage. So an arranged marriage is one that you enter into freely without physical or emotional pressure, and it's legal, whereas a forced marriage is illegal. Going back to forced marriage, is this illegal within the United Kingdom? So the simple answer is, yes, it is illegal. Um, Forcing someone to marry can result in a sentence of up to seven years in prison. And the offence includes taking someone overseas to force them to marry, whether or not the marriage goes ahead in the other country. And it also includes marrying someone who lacks the mental capacity to consent to marriage, whether they are pressured or not. So it is very much illegal. Could you, could you just tell us a little bit about how, uh, how a person might uh, end a forced marriage? Is it a similar process to, to any other marriage or is there anything special that, that would need to happen? Yeah, so uh, so you're right in thinking that it, it, it would be similar to um, any other marriage, except for the fact that it's effectively deemed to be avoidable marriage. Uh, so that's voidable, not avoidable. And in terms of ending the marriage, you can annul it. Uh, so in order to obtain an annulment, you have to complete and file with the court something called a nullity petition. And and the petition itself is fairly straightforward. And there's a, a fee for doing it, which is £550. Um, but yeah, so you can end it by by filing a nullity petition. But there's also various other laws in place to, to protect you. And the main vehicle of protection is, is something called a forced marriage protection order, which you apply for under Section 63A of the Family Law Act. And 
This is an order which is unique to each case and it's designed to protect the person who has been or who is being forced into a marriage. And it can contain such prohibitions, restrictions or requirements and such other terms as the court considers appropriate for the purposes of the order. So, as I say, it's, it's unique to each case. And so there is that protection order out there and, and the way and it can be applied for by either the victim or by relatives, friends or voluntary workers and, and also by police officers with leave of the court. And it acts a bit like an injunction in lots of ways. It prevents the, the perpetrator or the perpetrators from doing certain things, such as being physically violent, contacting you directly or indirectly or taking you out of the country or making marriage arrangements. Um, and it can also require somebody to do certain things like hand over passports or uh, ensure that somebody attends school. That's, that's, that's really helpful. I just wanted to, to pick up and clarify one of the points that you mentioned early on. Um, mm-hmm. You talked about uh, avoidable marriage. Yes. I imagine if you could maybe uh, just explain a little bit more about what that means um, and in, you know how is that different from maybe divorce, which maybe most people are, are probably quite familiar with and sort of the sort of the difference the difference briefly between those two yeah and i think that's that's a really good point so um there there's sort of three different types of marriage as a as a void marriage avoidable marriage and a normal marriage and i say normal in inverse commas um so a void marriage is a marriage that is not legally valid um so effectively it never existed. The law says it never existed. Avoidable marriage is, which is what a forced marriage is. Um, it did exist, but it can be annulled, um, and it can be annulled because you didn't properly consent to the marriage. And then, a, and a normal, in inverted commas, marriage is one where it, consent was given. You entered into it freely, um, and and on that basis, you then get divorced. With avoidable marriage, you you have something called a decree of nullity. Uh, so it's a slightly different form that you would fill in to if you were going for a normal, again, inverse commas, uh, divorce. Um, but I think the important thing to remember is that if you apply for a, uh, an annulment, you're still entitled to obtain financial relief uh, once that is granted in the same way that you are if you go through a, a normal divorce. Thanks for that, Amy. Um, all- People such as myself or staff or friends, family, relatives or members of the public, what are the signs of forced marriage? Yeah, and I, again, I think that's a really, really good question. And um, so I think the first thing I would say is that this whole sort of topic and, and uh situation needs to be dealt with extremely discreetly because there is a danger that if you recognize some signs of of forced marriage and you go in and you talk to the wrong people about it then you can create much bigger problems so the first thing I'd say is if you have any concerns at all then I would speak to the forced marriage unit and I'm going to talk about that a little more in later on but um they are the people I think I would say go to first before you do anything so in terms of signs to look out for I mean one of the obvious perhaps signs is that if someone came from a community where forced marriage and honour is culturally embedded then it might be worth if there are other signs as well then obviously that could be something to look out for uh, an announcement of engagement to a stranger who somebody hasn't mentioned before 
uh, particularly if it comes out of the blue, potentially. Parents removing a child from education or preventing further education or extracurricular activities. There might be noticeable levels of absenteeism, lateness from school or from employment. It might feel like the person is being kept under surveillance and control by the family or their community members. There might be significant personality changes because obviously the notion of being forced into a marriage is extremely distressing for people. So the victim may appear depressed, withdrawn, anxious or suicidal potentially. And there might be a noticeable deterioration in the victim's self-esteem and, and appearance. The victim could run away or go missing from home or have a fear of returning home. They might talk about a family holiday abroad and they might seem anxious about this. They might fail to return from a trip to their family's country of origin. Uh, as I said, there might be sort of issues of suicidal kind of thoughts and there might be suicide attempts particularly mm-hmm. in the early stages of the marriage and there might be some domestic violence yeah. um, and the victims might appear to be dominated or subject to financial control and those are just a few things to look out for. Okay thank you. Thanks Amy. Um, I, I think you, you mentioned then sort of an important point um, about people um, sort of being very cautious uh, about how they might discuss um, uh, with someone who they suspect may be in a forced marriage. But um, if some of our residents or some, anyone listening to this is uh, and is starting to be concerned that, that they may uh, or, or are aware that they, they've got a forced marriage, um, who, who can they speak to about um, and getting some help? And um, where, where as well can people who are concerned that someone they may know be in a forced marriage, where can they go to to, to get some guidance about what to do? Yeah, so uh, as I said before, and I think this is again is such a good question, it's um, really important to get the right advice at a very early stage. So the people to talk to are the forced marriage unit and they have a confidential helpline and that number is 020-7008-0151. So 020-7008-0151. And the forced marriage unit is a joint team comprised of people from the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and the Home Office. And they operate both inside the UK uh, and overseas. So in in terms of overseas, they offer consular assistance uh, to British nationals, including dual nationals. And they operate a public helpline, the number for which I've just given. And they provide advice and support to victims of forced marriage, as well as to professionals and other people dealing with cases. And it the advice they give ranges from safety advice through to helping a forced marriage victim prevent their unwanted spouse moving to the UK and extreme circumstances. They will assist with rescues of victims held against their will overseas. They also undertake uh, extensive training and awareness program targeting both professionals and potential victims, and they carry out a range of work to raise awareness. So they are really the people to contact if you have any concerns at all. If I was in a forced marriage do I have the right to financial support from my husband? So again, such a good question um, and something that I'm sure that people who are in this horrendous situation will be very concerned about. And the answer is yes. 
as I mentioned before, a forced marriage is avoidable marriage. So you're entitled to a decree of nullity and therefore to the full range of financial remedies in the same way that you would be if the marriage had been entered into with consent. So you can apply for maintenance, both for yourself and for your children. For capital orders, including lump sum payments, property adjustment orders and pension sharing orders. Now, obviously, the outcome of any such application will depend on the amount of money that your spouse has. But you are very much entitled to support from them if they have the resources. Uh, it's also important, I think, to and this is a slightly off off the question, but to, to highlight that as a mother, potentially, of children in a forced marriage, you have parental responsibilities. So you are entitled to leave the marriage with the children and you will not be punished for doing that. Thank you so much for your expert advice again. It's been brilliant. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, no, thank you very much for having me. Recently, Bria caught up with the Domestic Abuse Housing Alliance to talk about the work they do in the housing sector. As a business, we're aiming to become DAHA accredited in the future so that we can further help any of our customers in need before domestic abuse situations worsen or ever begin. This interview hopefully will help you understand a bit more about why the accreditation is important for our development as an organisation and some of the ways it can help us to be better. I am joined by a lady from DAHA. Savannah, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Saranya Kogulathis um, from DAHA, the Domestic Abuse Housing Alliance, um, and I'm the London DAHA Development Manager, which means that I work with local authorities and housing associations, as well as ALMOs and TMOs and essentially the social housing sector to respond to domestic abuse through successfully gaining DAHA accreditation, which I'll talk a little bit about soon. Some of our residents and customers will have heard about DAHA because we've had some communications on our internet page and in our Open Door magazine. I was just wondering if you could, in a bit more detail, explain to them what DAHA is? Sure. So DAHA stands for the Domestic Abuse Housing Alliance. And essentially, this is a partnership between three organisations. And it was founded in 2014. So the three organisations are Peabody, so they're a housing association, Gentoo, another housing association, and Stand Together Against Domestic Abuse. And essentially, these three organisations came together because at the time, there was nothing in place to respond to domestic abuse from a housing perspective. However, we know that housing is the number one barrier for survivors fleeing domestic abuse. It's, it's a key area. And, survive, and uh, with housing, they're in a really privileged position as well to spot domestic abuse. So, for example, uh, repeat repairs, call-outs, um, evictions, um, noise complaints, etc. These key signs which we'll know about, um, you know, makes housing really well-placed to respond to it. Um, and so essentially, kind of in the simplest way, it is a framework for housing to use to have an effective response to um, domestic abuse. So if I was a customer of a housing association or an organisation, or if I was a resident or a member of the public, which was using an organisation which was accredited by DAHA, how would I benefit from that? Sure. So from providers going through accreditation and accredited providers as well, we've seen just a more survivor-centred service where survivors are just seen in a more holistic way. So um, over the past few years, DAHA have been ev evaluated by the University of York and we launched our interim report at the end of last year. And this included interviews with survivors from 
accredited to organisations. And one of the really brilliant things that we saw was the speed at which housing providers made contact with the survivor and how quickly the support began um, and how quickly that was discussed. And in almost all cases, which the report looks at, the process was found to be extremely expedient. Um, survivors, on average, currently, survivors tend to approach about five or six organisations before they actually receive effective support. So the fact that from this, we can see actually they're getting that support straight away is huge. Um, another aspect that we've seen, and this is again from survivor testimonies, that they said the attitude of staff was felt to be non-judgmental and reassuring um, with case and support workers, and they, and they, which were held in kind of really high regard. Now, for other professionals who may be listening, because they do listen to these podcasts, or other organisations who may be thinking about DAHA and how it would benefit them as an organisation, what would you say to those people? So I think generally with the housing sector, I think housing has always wanted to do more around domestic abuse. But what we've been told is they just don't know where to start. But from the work we've done and speaking to providers, the things we consistently hear is that DAHA has provided organisations with this effective framework to respond to domestic abuse, as well as offering support from the team, um, you know, the DAHA team and also our online best practice toolkit, which basically has all the resources that people can use to get DAHA accreditation and have that in their organisations. What we've heard as well from staff across the country is they feel a lot more confident in responding to domestic abuse and they feel a lot more empowered to support survivors as well. And this is just because staff have got better knowledge of the support they can give them and they've also formed positive relationships with the domestic abuse sector. So this is something that I think a lot of organisations miss before they start um, the DAHA accreditation is when you ask a, a housing officer or a caseworker if they could tell me, you know, give me a list of their local support services, local domestic abuse services, they tend to struggle. But what we've seen with DAHA accreditation is there's way better partnerships. And sometimes with our DAHA interviews, we also interview the local domestic abuse service as well. And that's been one of the best parts of my job as well, just to hear from that service going, do you know what, we have a much better relationship with our local housing association um you know we can rely on them for certain things the housing element has been so much easier and that just makes it easier for the housing association as well just to have that aspect there but ultimately i think the key thing that organizations need to think about when going for DAHA accreditation how it will benefit them is you are saving lives there's preventive measures in place you're spotting that risk a lot earlier um, you're able to support the survivor as well and ultimately what you want you don't want a domestic homicide review in your organisation it's not what you want at all and that's what you've got kind of got to keep thinking as well that by doing all these extra things you are saving lives and giving a vital lifeline to lots of people that really that really really need it. What would be your advice for a person experiencing domestic abuse and wanting to leave or gain support? So the first thing I would say is to find your local domestic abuse service and you can do that um, you know through googling or uh, women's aid online have a domestic abuse directory and you can literally just put in the area that you're in it will tell you what service you're in so um the the key service is the national domestic abuse helpline but you know if you're from a particular background and you don't want to go to a generic service it can give you local services um for organizations that support women from lots of different backgrounds so for example there's services for women of color disabled women um lots of things out there so the key thing i would do is contact your local domestic abuse service however in an emergency the key thing is you know ensuring that you are calling the police if things are really escalating it and you are in a, an emergency situation i think 
another thing as well if you're in a situation where you're unable to telephone someone or anything like that in, in particular if you're if you're at a housing association if there's someone doing repairs or a gas check or anything you know being able to disclose you know to them or saying that you need help as well and remembering help is out there um because we know especially during lockdown it's been much harder for people to seek help because they're monitored uh, all the time by um you know by the perpetrator but thinking about kind of also how you as housing what can you do to spot those people that may be hidden um but ultimately for anyone experiencing it the key thing is um calling your um local domestic abuse helpline um and they will be able to fight, give you all the information that you need and support you as well thanks so much for that um information it's really really valuable and i would just like to say thank you for joining me today on this podcast to uh, give a different insight and a different um information on what housing is doing and i look forward to continue working with you as our daha development manager and perhaps when we're accredited in a year's time we can come back and we can talk about that accreditation together that would be brilliant. And I just want to say as well, it's been amazing to see all the work that's been doing um, at Southern Housing Group. And another thing that I was just really impressed by was the the fact that your chief exec was at the last steering group. I just thought it was great. And um, having that senior buy-in is huge. Um, I just so I was really impressed by that. And I've just been really impressed by the work that um, yourself, Bree, you've been doing, you've been carrying all this, and also Graham as well. It's been amazing to see, and I can't wait to see how it grows and continues as well. And yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Southern Housing Group podcast as today's episode wraps up our series on domestic abuse. A huge thank you goes to all of the guests we've had on the show across the five episodes and of course to my co-host Bria. All of the resources and links that we've mentioned in this series will be in the episode description below and we'll be back soon with a brand new series so stay tuned for that.